This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour today. I'm Cassie Health. Now, there's been an update today on who can access the vaccine to protect against Japanese encephalitis. I'll have more details on that soon. And mandatory electronic ID tags for sheep and goats will be coming in. Livestock SA has been gathering your thoughts. There were varying views about EID, but the majority is about 60%. The majority were in support or neutral of the move to individual traceability for sheep and goats. I'll have more on how that feeds into how South Australia is going to go about adopting the technology soon. But first up, there's been a lot of activity on ahead as South Australia's potentially record-breaking 12.1 million tonne crop this year is putting a lot of pressure on the supply chains, particularly with this warm weather, meaning that uh, farmers have ramped up reaping. Rebecca Starrick from Pinion Advisory says receival sites are under pressure in some areas. Yeah, so this is one of the biggest crops that South Australia has seen for quite some time. And particularly we're seeing once-in-a-lifetime yields out of parts of the Upper Air Peninsula, um, parts of the Mallee and other different regions of South Australia as well, which means there's a lot of stress on our current systems. Um, and there's a few things happening in terms of a lot of grain hitting the system all at the same time, which is adding just a lot of stress to our supply chain. So hearing of a lot of building activity at certain sites like timber seaports to build more bunker capacity to take more grain. You mentioned Kimber Teapots as a site that has had uh, a lot of activity, uh, often all at once. Uh, mm-hmm. Are there any other sites of concern from Teapots yes. or any from Viterra? It's a pretty widespread system issue. So Kinneroo AWB has also had some capacity issues. I know that they're looking at um, reducing their capacity to take some barley grades just because there's now a lot of demand for wheat storage and wheat capacity. So jumping between different commodities and and their ability to shift from barley to wheat is is putting stress on their ability to take lots of different grades. Um, And this is widespread across the state too. So it's not just a particular um, storage or supply chain issue. Cummins Vitera has also filled up with GM canola. Um, It just goes to show how popular GM canola has been this year and how well it's yielded around Cummins. Um, And also further afield, so the Upper EP generally takes a lot of canola down south to Cummins and to Portlink, well, Cummins in particular from a GM canola point of view. So there's other little sites like Edalilly, Kipini, um, a few sites like that that have had had to step up and take more grain. At one stage, I've heard that the line-up at Edalilly was at least three hours long um, to unload GM canola because... Again, the demand has been quite strong and guys are still reaping. So if they haven't been able to get tons into Cummins, they've had to go to those secondary smaller sites that have smaller capacity and a bit slower. And, yeah, what's contributing to uh, capacity at certain times? Is it just the sheer volumes or is it also Mm. that um, with uh, quite a bit of uh, wet weather around, are people sort of all doing everything, are people uh, reaping and transporting all sort of Mm. at the same time? So it's a compound of a lot of different issues. So 
the wet weather's definitely delayed things and pushed a lot of harvest closer together. So a lot of different regions are actually going at the same time, whereas usually you have this steady sort of flow from the upper EP through um, through parts of the upper north and then into into the later areas. But it's very congested this year in terms of the grain coming in. Freight is quite short as well. So if you've got trucks, you want to use them and you want to get the grain away from the farm as quick as possible. Um, the other thing is too, we've actually got larger machines on our farms these days as well. So when we've had a big crop in the past, we've, the trucking capacity and the header capacity has been closely aligned, whereas now our headers can reap so much more per hour than they have previously. And so to be able to keep grain away from the paddock and get it actually moving into the system is uh, taking a lot more effort um, to get it away. So there's a, there's a lot of different issues that have kind of combined all at once to, to add pressure to the system this year. It is going to be a really big harvest, um, which will be quite exciting for a lot of people. And just hearing the stories of particularly the once-in-a-lifetime crop um, yields that we are hearing out of some regions in particular, even regions that have had wind, that have had a bit of hail damage, there's still really good yields sitting in the paddock. So we just need some patience. Silo staff are doing the best they can. Uh, a lot of the marketing staff as well is on the front desk around customer service out of Ikea and AWB and all of those big uh, companies. They are doing the best they can um, and it's, it's a stressful time, but it's pretty exciting when we're dealing with the tonnages that we are this year. Rebecca Starrick from Pinion Advisory speaking with Eliza Berlage. Grow deliveries into the Viterra network ramped up last week with more than 1.3 million tonnes delivered as farmers make the most of this warmer weather. It takes the receivables into Viterra to more than 2.4 million tonnes for the season. In fact, growers actually delivered more grain last week than in the previous seven weeks combined since the first delivery in October. And Friday was the busiest day with 226,000 tonnes delivered. Now, Teaports has also been very busy building extra capacity at some of its sites as well. Tim Gurney is the Business Development and Client Relations Manager at Teaports. He can explain a little further. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cathy. So how are things looking? Because there is a massive crop coming in from the Air Peninsula and particularly that northern Air Peninsula is seeing big tonnages. Yeah, very, very busy, Cathy. It's, it's certainly a record year. Um, you know, we're looking at anywhere north of uh, uh, 4 million tonnes, so you know, 3.3 in 2016. So, you know, it could be, you know, potentially 30% bigger than, than record, which is just massive. Great news for the growers. Teapots has been around for a couple of years, but this would be just about the largest harvest you've seen. How are you going storage-wise? Uh, certainly the certainly largest harvest we've seen in our, our short four years. So we're going OK. You know, we... Uh, we, we only built the Kimber bunker site back here 14 months ago and, you know, last harvest we filled that to capacity. Uh, before this harvest we doubled its capacity and on Monday morning that very, very nearly filled. Uh, we nearly had, to, well, we did actually close the site for three hours to move some stackers around and we've created uh, another two bunkers in the last uh, four or five days there at Kimber and starting to fill them. So getting some fantastic support around Kimber um, and really supporting the growers with the extra capacity there. Um, our lock site um, is coming under a bit of pressure now uh, with storage capacity and, you know, we're looking to see if we can increase that with a couple of scrape bunkers, if we can get, um, you know, some, some machinery and some contractors in to do that in good time. So there's a potential opportunity there. Uh, Lucky Bay, 
Our Lucky Bay is good for space. We're just starting to load our uh, first harvest vessel, uh, X Lucky Bay. So, you know, that certainly takes some pressure off of Lucky Bay and, you know, the, the vessels from now on almost for the next, you know, um, eight to ten months are just back-to-back -back through Lucky Bay. So that's a good news story to, to keep the tonnes flowing through the sites. Do you think the extra capacity that you've built at Kimber will be enough to handle the rest of the crop? Have you sort of seen the peak of it now, do you think? You know, it may, it may not be, um, but certainly Lucky Bay's got capacity. Um, you know, we're, we're certainly trying our best at, at Kimber and Lock to get as much grain as we as we possibly can and you know you can only build so, so many bunkers um in a short period of time but you know to to go from you know doubling the site capacity in 12 months and then increasing another couple of bunkers within a, a four or five days is a fair effort and you know we, we're just getting flooded with grain because of you know the popularity of the prices and the traders that you know the posting the prices has just been great you know the ep is probably 60 percent of the way through harvest on our catchment zone um, and, and certainly on the York Peninsula and Mid-North, um, you know, we're probably 20% of, of the way through the wheat harvest um, on the Waipa and Mid-North. This is a massive crop. It could be the largest that this state sees for some time. How do you balance that with the risk of overcapitalising? Yeah, it's a good question, Cassie. You know, you've got to be really careful. You know, it's like growers, you know, they'd love a third or a fourth header in the paddock this year but you know it could sit in the sheds for the next five or six so you know we're, we're wary of over over capitalizing but still delivering on our service capabilities to the growers so it's a it's a good balance yep how about wallaroo how's wallaroo shaping up wallaroo's off to a reasonable start still a lot of growers on their lentils and we're only taking wheat at wallaroo uh, at the minute so yeah we, we're taking you know up around that, that 3,000 tonne a day on a busy day but um, that'll certainly ramp up when the weather finds up and a lot of growers uh, get onto their wheat. Um, some really good options there for the for the YP and Mid-North growers. I've heard that some sites are having to reduce capacity for barley grades. Are you reducing your grades? Uh, no, we're full on a few segregations. Um, SP1 we had to close, uh, the bunker was full at lock I had to close that, uh, but currently we've still got an SP1 segregation open at Lucky Bay. The sites are still taking uh, most of the grades and all that's updated via our text messages and on our websites. Now you mentioned there that you've started loading the ships for export. Is this early for you to start exporting? Um, it's probably the earliest. Um, we've started exporting, I guess. Um, you know, we've, we've got a number of vessels due in December. Uh, which is great for us. It really, you know, increases our receivable capacity at harvest time. So, um, you know, just adds strength to the supply chain. So it's, it's good for the growers. Well, uh, it's certainly a massive crop and it's going to continue for some time by the sounds of things. We could be harvesting well into the new year in some areas. So I'll keep in touch. Thanks so much for your, your uh, commentary today. Thanks, Cassie. Tim Gurney, Business Development and Client Relations Manager with T-Ports. It is 16 minutes past 12. Weather and markets up soon. But Delinda, a recent survey has found that there's some confusion on how mandatory electronic ID tags will look for the livestock industry in this state. The results showed that the implementation, which is expected to roll out on January 1st, 2025, is being met with mixed sentiment. CEO of Livestock SA, Travis Tobin, says there will need to be more clarity after today's Federal Agriculture Minister meeting. We're really pleased with the response to the survey. We had nearly 700 responses and, you know, that, that was really about getting details of the sentiment towards change. What is the individual capacity? What is the understanding? 
what is the likelihood of the ability to implement EID and try to get a steer towards the support that might be required. It sounds like that net was cast quite widely and you've got lots of different people weighing in. What were some of the understandings and also, I guess, the sentiment or concerns that the survey showed? Yeah, that's right. And it was different in the different stages of the consultation process. So, for example, in the in the site visits and focus groups, they were more the supply chain end a bit more, which were really about, OK, what are the costs of infrastructure upgrades we need? We know we're going to need to change things. We know we're going to need to uh, implement new technology. How do we transition to the software? And above all that, while we're doing this, how do we maintain efficiency in the supply chain? So, you know, those sorts of discussions. But then the survey, the majority of people People who completed it were uh, sheep producers. So I think it was over 90% of the people that completed it were sheep producers. And that, again, was there were varying views about EID, but the majority is about 60%. The majority were in support or neutral of the move to individual traceability for sheep and goats. And on a similar theme, the majority, it was around 67% agreed or were neutral uh, that introducing EID would improve our ability to quickly and accurately trace animals and that it would also improve our ability to access and maintain key export markets. So then the other side of the survey was it also showed that a lot of producers aren't clear on what is required, particularly from a technical perspective and what they might need in capability in a business sense. So uh, a lot, a few misconceptions came through and then around what support would you need? It was clear that things like subsidies, the national approach to doing this, regional training, those sorts of things were the most popular responses. So that helps with the implementation side of this because it gives us a pretty clear indication that there's going to need to be boots on the ground and, and a help desk. So producers got places to go and support with, with getting through this if we're going to successfully implement it. From the survey, what were some of the challenges expressed in terms of being able to create a, a national harmonised system? Uh, so the thing with the national system is obviously Victoria is already doing a certain way and there's slightly different processes in each state. But at the end of the day, we do already have, you know, a national movement system through the national livestock identification system. So some of it's about enhancing that even, which is it's positive that the federal government did commit us some money in the last budget. So it was about $47 million towards continuous improvement of national livestock traceability. So there's no doubt the NLS needs to be updated. And there's a, there's a range of things that will need to change. So it's about getting all those systems to start to talk together, which obviously requires implementation of technology, you know, investment, and then testing it. So making sure the system works. But yeah, from, from a more practical sense, the responsibilities on where you are in the supply chain vary a lot. So if you're just a closed flock breeder, you know, you, you don't have a lot of impost on you to, other than putting an, e, an RFID tag in to comply with what you need to do. Uh, however, some of the sale yards, etc., they'll obviously need to upgrade systems. They may need to update the way they handle livestock, the way they draft and process livestock through their systems, etc. And the same sorts of things apply uh, at the processing end. So so it varies a lot depending where you go. And that's why we've got the consultant we have who's who's pretty experienced in this area of work, pulling this together in a, in a business case for us. The implementation's expected to be mandatory nationally by January 1st, 2025. So it's just over two years away. How is it tracking to meet those targets and what's the next step now? 
Yeah, it, it, it will creep up quickly. You're, you're absolutely right. So there's there's two processes going on for us here in South Australia. Obviously, we've got the local process that we're going through to make sure we can consistently account for what needs to happen nationally, but also account for SA-specific circumstances and needs. And then you've got a national process uh, with a national sheep and goat traceability task force, and that's sort of working through a national plan of timelines and targets and how would you stage the approach, still working towards that go live date of 1 January 2025. So we'll actually know a little bit more about what that task force is thinking after tomorrow because there's an agricultural minister's meeting tomorrow and we should be advised a bit more about that. In our own process, the draft business case from the consultant was handed in to the steering committee at the end of last month and the steering committee is currently considering that, providing feedback and we'll have a um, final business case before Christmas. CEO of Livestock SA, Travis Tobin, speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris. So there will be more information forthcoming soon. It feels like it's moving quickly, but there is information on the Livestock SA website as well if you need some more information. Right across to the markets now, Peter Kerr has the results from markets across the state. Good afternoon, Cassie. This is the Mount Cattle Report for the 7th of December. Numbers listed as 80 out of 1,072 head of live weight and open auction cattle. Feed sold to a large field of trade and processor buyers along with feeder and restocker interest. Quality improved with weight and condition in most pens in a mixed market for price. Feeder sears east 5 to 10 cents. The trade was active from 438 to 480, with similar heifers making from 410 to 470 cents a kilogram. Feeders operated from 432 to 480 cents on steers and on heifers from 405 to 445, with restockers support from 400 to 517 cents a kilogram. Over both sexes. Yearly steers to the trade made from 414 to 450. Heifers made from 400 to 455. Feeder salt steers from 290 to 471 cents and heifers to 378, with some restocker support to 438 cents a kilogram. Crown steers and bullocks sold to the trade from 355 to 422 cents. Feeders are active from 375 to 470. Crown heifers to the trade returned from 350 to 428 cents with feeder support from 410 to 425 as manufacturing steers range from 280 to 348 cents a kilogram. Heavy cows made from 312 to 351 cents to remain firm in price. Lighter weights made from 260 to 304. Feeders operated from 274 to 333 cents as heavy bulls range from 350 to 390 cents a kilogram. Cassie, I've also got the Dublin reports from up at the South Australian Livestock Exchange yesterday. There was a much reduced yarding of 3,142 crossbred and merino lambs. After last week's disappointing results, lamb prices rebounded with both crossbreds and merinos, garnering increases in values of $20 to $25 a head, with all the usual processes and trade buyers active. Heavyweight and tradeweight merino lambs attracted stronger bidding, however, lightweight merinos continue to languish. Light crossbred lands from sixty to one hundred and twenty-five dollars. Light trade types from one hundred and thirty to one hundred and fifty-five. Heavy crossbreds from one hundred and fifty to one hundred and eighty, with the extra heavies from one hundred and ninety to two hundred and twenty. Light merino lands returned from forty to eighty dollars. Light trades from eighty to one hundred. Heavy merinos from one hundred and twenty to one hundred and ninety, with the extra heavies from one hundred and ninety to two hundred dollars a head. Hogs range from seventy to one hundred and thirty dollars. There was another large yarding of three thousand and forty-four generally good quality sheep yarded. Unlike lands, there was no rebounding prices and prices remain as low as we've seen for several years as processes appear reluctant to complete. Prices remain on a par with last week's results. A few pens of heavyweight use achieving a $100 a head mark. Weathers were again scarce and a few heavyweights yarders sold up to $127. 
range were again virtually unwanted and supply continues to outweigh demand. Light use range from fifty to sixty five dollars, heavy types from sixty to hundred. Light weathers from fifty to seventy, the heavy weathers from hundred to hundred and twenty seven, rams from forty to hundred dollars a head. Following on from that, there was a smaller yarding of 166 mick cattle, which sold a stronger than anticipated competition provided by the usual buyers. Despite tumbling prices at most 70 centres, feeder and restocker buyers were keen to secure stock, and prices for lightweight cattle in particular remained fully firm. Processors attempted to drag prices for slaughter cattle back, but met with determined opposition, as cows and bulls sold at rates comparable to last week. Rivers to the trade from 450 to 520 cents, store types from 490 to 560. Yearlings to the trade from 380 to 450, store types from 390 to 5 dollars. Heavy cows from 280 to 300 cents, light cows from 240 to 280, light bulls from 350 to 490, with the heavy bulls from 260 to 300 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, Peter. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now. We're seeing your forecaster, Vince Rollins, has the latest. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. So it's looking like it's going to warm up ahead of the uh, test cricket. It is. So, uh, yeah, milder conditions across most parts of the state today. A bit of cloud around over the last 24 hours, quite a bit of lightning activity over parts of the northern agricultural area and pastoral districts. Um, ended up with a little bit of rainfall in some parts. Uh, Georgetown had nine millimetres and Mount I've had eight millimetres. So under the thunderstorms there were some locations that got a little bit of rainfall but generally not a lot in it. Um, But yeah as uh, we go into the next couple of days that cooler air is just going to push a little bit further north. Still pretty uh, hot today up in the far northeast but uh, as we get into tomorrow that cooler air will push right through and that's just due to a high pressure system uh, just starting to move into western parts of the bite at the moment and that will continue to move eastwards uh, towards the well over the next couple of days ahead of a, a trough that is going to move into the far west of the state probably late Friday into Saturday morning and then that trough will move across the state during Saturday and Sunday so we are expecting winds to go round to the north uh, as that uh, trough approaches and so Certainly that will bring some, again, some pretty hot temperatures uh, into parts of the state. So we're likely to see a return to some 40 degree plus days in in the west and then over uh, the north of the state uh, during the weekend. But with that uh, hot air, there is going to be a bit of... uh, wind the northerly winds will pick up a little bit as well so we will see some elevated fire dangers uh, on Saturday over quite uh, over a few districts so we'll obviously be looking at that one pretty closely over the next couple of days and we do actually have a a fire weather warning out for the northeast pastoral district for today but uh, that will ease tomorrow as I mentioned the cooler air pushing through so look there is a a little bit of weather associated with this trough we start to see uh, the effects of it Uh, tomorrow start to see some possible thunderstorm and shower activity in the far west and that just gradually extends eastwards uh, as the the weekend approaches so Friday you know just some possible thunderstorm and shower activity just extending to about Cooper PD does ease off a little bit during central and southern parts on Saturdays that trough moves through so looks like the thunderstorm activity we will be Uh, confined to the far north of the state but we are expecting showers over the southern agricultural area. The showers and thunderstorms become uh, more extensive on Sunday so more likely to see uh, some reasonable shower activity over southern parts of the state and then those showers become confined to the southern agricultural area 
on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. So the real focus, I think, for the next few days is just increasing temperatures and obviously this trough moving through on Saturday with those elevated uh, fire dangers. Rainfall, look, we're not expecting a great deal over the next four days, generally looking at uh, where we do see showers, maybe up to that sort of five millimetre mark, but obviously with thunderstorms could see some falls getting up to that sort of 10 to 20 millimetre mark. But uh, yeah, I think Saturday is the, the day of interest, Cassie. Thanks so much for that. Vince Rollins there with the weather forecast in the far west of New South Wales. The upper western there is a chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast in the early morning. It'll be a sunny day though. Weather, uh, wind, I should say, picking up a little to 35 kilometres an hour. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 12 and 18 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach 24 to 30. The lower western will be sunny. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 8 and 11 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the low to mid 30s. We've got more to come on the Country Hour, including a bit of an update on what's happening with vaccinations for Japanese encephalitis as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company this afternoon. Now it's summertime and we tend to go through how various fruits are going in terms of whether, whether they're in season or not and avocados. Well, if you've been in the supermarket lately, you've probably seen a lot of avocados. That's because there is still a massive oversupply of the, the fruit. So they're keen to make sure that people are getting tucked in and eating their avocados. So I'd be interested to know, what's your favourite? favourite way to eat an avocado. I know a lot of the avocado producers, we're very happy to see lots of people eating avocado this summer. Nearly half of all the trees planted in Australia are yet to come into full production. So this isn't a one-off, what we've just seen. It's going to continue over the next few years as we continue to increase our production. We're going through a massive growth phase and and, um, obviously the industry is going through some fairly serious growing pains victims of their own success to a certain extent. Let me know how you love to eat your uh, avocado. I actually had avocado on toast for breakfast this morning. You can text me 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 891. Also coming up I'll have details on changes to who can access the free Japanese encephalitis vaccine. But until then, here's Matt Coleman with the latest in the news headlines. Good afternoon. Hello Cassie. In the news this afternoon an Adelaide carpenter will spend at least four years in jail for killing a woman in a drunken head-on crash on the Fleuria Peninsula more than three years ago. District Court Judge Emily Telfer sentenced Ty George Martin to five years jail with a non-parole period of four years for dangerous driving which killed 50-year-old Nadine Varga in McLaren Vale in March 2019. She refused to suspend the sentence or allow the 25-year-old to serve it on home detention because he knew he was over the limit when he got behind the wheel. 
Work has begun on building a temporary levee along the riverfront in Renmark. The SES is building the levee using special defence cell technology that allows the levee to be built more quickly than normal and in small spaces. And the police commissioner says officers are continuing, are continuing to assist child protection services by checking on 526 at-risk children within the state's child protection system. The child protection department has come under fire recently during an inquest into an 11-week-old baby who died in squalor four years ago and the recent deaths of two children who had been known to several government agencies. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman. There now, the state government is making the Japanese encephalitis virus vaccine available to people whose holiday homes may be inundated by flooding from the River Murray. Emergency services workers helping out with the flooding event will also be able to get uh, the vaccine with the eligibility criteria expanded today. Now, the JEV outbreak this year has seen nine people acquire the disease in South Australia since December last year, and uh, that led to hospitalisation and sadly two deaths. A total of 26,500 vaccines have been made available by the Commonwealth and State Government and Chief Public Health Officer Professor Nicola Spurrier is strongly encouraging people to take precautions to protect themselves against the mosquito bites. Here's some of what she had to say at a press conference this morning. This is certainly going to be a very significant mosquito season. We might not have seen that many mosquitoes around up until now because it had been cold, but they are going to explode with this warmer weather and there is so much water around. Now, of course, uh, there's Japanese encephalitis virus. It's very um, uh, important for us in South Australia to get our heads around this because it's a new virus in our state. We had nine cases earlier this year, um, as, and that was part of last year's mosquito season. Uh, similarly, Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria also had cases, but about 25% of the cases were in South Australia and all clustered, other than one person, all clustered around um, the River Murray uh, because that's where mosquitoes are and that's also where the nomadic water birds are, which also carry the virus. So um, uh, in terms of uh, providing vaccines, um, we've made it very clear that we are focusing on people who are most at risk and those are people that live and work around the Murray River and we've got all of the postcodes up on our website at the moment. But in addition to that, because of the floods that we're experiencing, there's two groups of people also um, impacted, and that is obviously emergency services workers, including people that are volunteering. Um, and so we're using criteria that have been used in other states, Victoria and New South Wales, um, and that uh, is for people who are definitely going to be here. So it's not just if you're an emergency services worker and you might be thinking about going, it's for people that are actually going to be here with boots on the ground and here for at least a four-week period, whether or not that's in a continuous four weeks or coming and going over uh, a period of time. Uh, also needing the four hours outdoor rule because that's where you're most at risk if you're outdoors, but mostly those people will be outdoors as emergency services workers. Now the other really important group, um, and I think people um, will be very happy to hear this, is that we are extending this now to shack owners. So there are obviously a lot of people that have properties along the river but they're only using those as a holiday accommodation. But, the, the, um, but it's going to be limited to those people who have shacks or holiday homes which will be inundated um, by the flooding. And that's because um, they will need to come and, and check on their property during that period of time, but also uh, many will have a lot of clean-up to do afterwards and have to be up here spending that time up here uh, to sort out their property. 
Now we've looked at the numbers. Um, we've, we, we know that there's just over 2,000 registered shacks along the River Murray that are likely to be flooded. And um, uh, we also have had a, a door knock that people I think are aware of that, the, uh, that SAPOL have undertaken. So we think that there's around um, somewhere between two and 3,000 owners um, of shacks along the River Murray that will have their property um, inundated and um, will experience flood damage. So we would like to be able to provide vaccine also to that group of people, um, which I'm sure uh, many of those um, homeowners will be very happy to hear about. Um, but really in the May we want to make sure that it is the local community and I'm um, here up at Wakery so uh, lovely to see some of the locals. Uh, we want to make sure that the local people have access to this um, vaccine. Now just in terms of the vaccine, uh, anyone aged two months and up can be vaccinated. We have a special vaccine um, for the little ones, two months to nine month olds, um, and also for pregnant women, women who are breastfeeding, and also people who are immunocompromised. It's a different vaccine, but for the general uh, use, um, it's uh, Imagev. Now, the other thing I wanted to tell people about today was not just about the vaccine. Because as in addition to JEV, there are other known viruses that cause severe disease that are carried by mosquitoes. And that's Ross River, um, Barmara Forest, and also Murray Valley encephalitis. We have a, um, a, a um, surveillance program in place along the river, uh, which involves um, sentinel chickens and also um, mosquito trapping. And then we check on the mosquitoes to see whether any of those viruses are there. We've had three detects already for Ross River virus. You can't protect yourself with a vaccine. The JV vaccine is not going to do it. So everybody that is working, playing, recreating, living along the River Murray, um, or any, indeed anywhere in South Australia where there's lots of mosquitoes, need to think about fighting the bite. So I wore today what you should be wearing when you're out and about around the river. You need to have loose fitting, long sleeve, light coloured clothing um, to cover most of your body up and then you have to be thinking about putting your insect repellent on. That was Chief Public Health Officer Professor Nicholas Spurrier there speaking about these changes that have been made to access to the Japanese encephalitis virus. If you have more questions, you can visit the SA Health website. There's more details there on the JEV vaccine and the eligibility as well. And hopefully we don't see a repeat of what was seen over summer and into autumn last year. Now, you may or may not be aware that there was a mass dumping of avocado this year. Avocado growers are again bracing for another year of oversupply off the back of increased production and another big flowering. So if you love your avocados, it's good news. There's supposedly going to be quite a lot around. I was interested to know how you eat them and people are dead keen on avocado with Vegemite. Well, we've got uh, fruit muffins, butter and Vegemite with half an avocado. Thanks for your text there. And uh, another text saying toast with a Promite and avocado every morning as well. I have heard of people liking it. I guess it's the saltiness in there that, that makes it taste good. Dan loves avocado on toast as a butter substitute and sometimes pairs it with Vegemite as well. So strong advocates for the uh, avocado and Vegemite. I'd love to know how you love to have your avocado. Text me 0467 one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. I was thinking about this and the way we always used to have it was you'd cut the avocado in half and then take out the pip and put salad dressing, 
French or Italian, just sort of that thin salad dressing in the the little hole that the the seed makes, and just use it and just eat the um, the avocado straight with a little bit of dressing, and that is delicious as well. So keep your thoughts coming on the best way to eat avocados because there are four million more trees in the ground compared to, to uh, oh, at the moment compared to the one and a half million trees ten years ago. Avocados Australia Chief Executive John Tyus tells Jennifer Nichols there are so many more, and this is putting a lot of pressure on the industry. It has been a very tough year, uh, and it's been coming for a while because we've been monitoring the tree plantings over the last few years, and uh, you know we know that nearly half of all the trees planted in Australia are yet to come into full production. So this isn't a one-off, uh, what we've just seen. It's going to continue over the next few years as we continue to increase our production up to about 170,000 tonnes, up from about 80,000 tonnes in 2021. So we're going through a massive growth phase and and, um, obviously the industry is going through some fairly serious growing pains. So, yeah, very tough year last year, but uh, we're doing everything we can to build demand in the domestic market, but, but also developing new export markets. Uh, because, you know, simply the the domestic market is going to struggle to consume all the volume that's coming in the next few years. Realistically, how competitive are we going to be, though, given the distances involved in export and the fact that so many other countries produce lots of avocados? Most of our competitors are in, in South America, so we are closer to our export markets, which are predominantly Asia. That's uh, Southeast Asia is where most of uh, our avocados go, and that's where our focus is. Um, we're also looking at uh, expanding our footprint into Japan and and uh, hoping to get access to to India before too long, which is uh, which is an emerging market. And, uh, and you know, one day we hope to get access to to China. So we're in a we're in a good position geographically for those growing markets. How many tons of avocados were produced in Australia last year, and how does that compare to the previous year? Uh, it's about 122,000 tonnes was produced in 2022, and it was just under 80,000 tonnes in in 2021. So about a you know about a 50 50 odd percent increase uh, in 12 months. So that's that's why it's been such a struggle to suddenly move such a large increase in volume into fairly limited markets. You know we've really only got. Probably three three major export markets and the domestic market, so fairly limited. Our biggest issue at the moment is getting getting access to to new markets, and and what I mean by that is technical market access. So so a lot of the countries we want access to have got quarantine protocols that need to be negotiated by by by, by the relative governments to uh, to put processes in place to manage um, pests of concern. So that's quite a, a lengthy process and, and that's an area that we're really focusing on at the moment uh, to try and get access to, to larger markets. Wow, the pressure's on you, isn't it, John Tyus? Because production is expected to continue to increase to about 170,000 tonnes by 2026. Yeah, exactly. The pressure is definitely on the industry. <clears throat> but like I say, I think there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. The key is being globally competitive. So, you know, growers need to do everything they can to get optimum yields because that drives profitability and quality. Quality is actually key. We we, uh, we just got back from a, a trip where we took a number of growers and exporters, a group of about 20, to um, Asia Fruit Logistica in Bangkok and then on to Kuala Lumpur and Singapore. 
the message that we got was really clear. We have to be the best. You know, we have to be, produce the best quality product. We need to have the best service. And with those things, I think, you know, if we're a reliable supplier of a really good quality product, um, Australia is seen as a producer of, of good quality produce. There are definitely good markets there. Uh, we've just got to really work for it. How low did the price per avocado go compared to the maximum price they've received in recent years? We go through a process of um, working out an average wholesale price each year. Last year it was around $17 a tray, which is really, really low. That's really below the cost of, of production. But previously it's been up to around, you know, $38, $40 a tray. So it's been a it's a been a big change and you know, long term, it'll it'll prove to be a good thing for the industry because it'll grow consumption. But you know, the Australian growers can't supply at that price. It's just it's just unsustainable uh, long term. Over the years, we've seen plantings boom. For example, macadamias is a classic example of peaks and troughs. Are you concerned that there could be really tough times ahead for the avocado industry if you can't get these markets open fast enough? Yes, well, you know, we've just been through a really tough year. That is going to continue for the next few years. There'll be some ups and downs along the way. Some growers may decide to to leave the industry if they don't think that they can be globally competitive, but definitely the majority of the industry is still very committed and still very confident in a really great future for the Australian avocado industry. But just a couple of few, few tough years ahead. And as I said, the key for our industry, the absolute is market access to new markets. Avocados Australia Chief Executive John Tyers speaking with Jennifer Nichols. Well, it sounds like South Australians are up to the task of helping consume these uh, avocados that are coming online with all the suggestions for how to eat them. Alina loves avocado with crumbled feta, pepper and toasted sunflower seeds on toast. That sounds very gourmet. I love the sound of that. Uh, then we've got... Uh, um, Eric, who enjoys avocado with honey on toast. And uh, Brian likes to see corn chips with sour cream and sweet chilli sauce and lots of avocado. That's uh, sounding quite gourmet as well. Brian also likes it with the, oh, and adding in some melted cheese as well. It's almost uh, like nachos there. I used to think that avocados and melted cheese just uh, grilled on the um uh, oven was a good idea, but I've discovered I don't actually particularly like cooked avocado. But yeah, with just the melted cheese is uh, is not too bad. Thanks for your text. Do keep them coming. Zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one is the the number to text or call in on one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Now Greg from Strathalbyn loves avocados with feta and tomatoes as well. Bet at Barmara is uh, enjoying her avocado in salads and on wraps. Hope everything's going well for you there on, in the Riverland uh, there, Bet And uh, Mick on the harvester is reaping a nice crop of lentils, but for avocados, no, he prefers to share and let his family eat them after doing a bit of shearing in his younger days. The colour and uh, texture remind me of, oh, and then it's a dot, dot, dot. don't know what he was going to say there. Uh, Glenn from Woodside likes just simple with some salt, pepper, mayonnaise, and maybe some sriracha sauce as well. We're getting very gourmet there. Uh, thanks so much. Keep those texts coming. 0467 922 or phone 1300 891 as we approach 12 minutes to 1.
Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. You may not have heard of the ABC's Haywire program, but Sue, you're going to hear from one of South Australia's winners who had a story that he didn't really particularly want to put down initially, but he warmed to the idea. I wasn't real keen on the idea to begin with, but once they told me that about the benefits and going to Canberra and that sort of thing, I thought, well, there's no harm in trying. Absolutely, and you're going to hear his great story soon. But in the meantime, we're talking about uh, the oversupply of avocados. Well, it seems like uh, the almond industry is in for a big crop as well. The Australian almond industry's harvest results are in for 2021-22, and it's a new record, and that's despite the La Nina weather causing crop losses and delays in processing. Eliza Berlach has this report. The Almond Board of Australia's latest insights report reveals the saleable production for 2022 is forecast to be about 143,805 tonnes. That's up from the 2021 total of 124,499 tonnes. Chief Executive Tim Jackson says growers managed the record yield despite challenges. We were expecting more damage due to the wet weather, but um, the reports we were receiving from our markers and processors suggest that, um, it, uh, that they've been able to salvage the crop in, in a much better way than they thought earlier in the year. So right across the region, in the Riverina probably had the most challenging year of all time with unprecedented rainfall since the start of the year. So it's a, a tribute to their ability to keep their product dry and for the processors to be able to process that product. And in terms of the breakdown of, of types of almonds that were harvested this year, what did that look like? So there was a reduced volume of inshell this year due to the wet weather. Wet weather and inshell does not go together. So from a quality point of view, it just makes a lot of sense to to crack that out. So normally we have very strong sales into India, but those sales were down due to the fact that they had nearly, well, 100% um, inshell-related product, but we just didn't have the availability of that stock this year. You mentioned the Riverina as being one of the regions that had the most difficulty with wet weather and harvesting almonds for this year. What were some of the sort of um, percentages of crop losses across the different regions? Uh, Still calculating those at this stage, simply because things have just taken a lot longer to process. Due to the wet weather and process of drying, we won't know those numbers until we get through the entire crop at the end of the season in February. But in all indications from our processes that they've been able to salvage something much better than we thought was possible when we're in the midst of the wet winter. However, he says the La Nina weather did affect the types of almonds harvested. So there was a reduced volume of inshell this year due to the wet weather. Wet weather and inshell does not go together. So from a quality point of view, it just makes a lot of sense to, to crack that out. Marketers and processors also managed to increase sales by 13% on the previous year, with 43% shipment growth to India, 36% growth to China and 21% to the Middle East. Mr Jackson again. Normally we have very strong sales into India, but those sales were down due to the fact that they had nearly, well, 100% um, inshell 
related product, but we just didn't have the availability of that stock this year. The almond industry is continuing to grow, with an additional 680 hectares reported in the 2021-22 to period. Total industry plantings also expanded to 60,463 hectares, with 75,000 hectares predicted by the end of the decade. Of the 17.7 million almond trees planted in Australia, 14% are not yet bearing and 38% aren't fully mature. Effective varroa mite on the industry will be revealed in next season's yield data. We're expecting a bumper crop next year, but given the issues we had with pollination with the shortage of bees, the ongoing wet weather and now the, and, and the flooding and heavy rains throughout a number of our areas, we're expecting the crop to be down, well down on its uh, original potential. Almond Board of Australia's Tim Jackson speaking there to Eliza Burlash. Maybe you can have your almonds with your avocado. Seems like they're both going to be in good supply. Chris from Mansfield Park is making me hungry for lunch. He likes avocado sliced Atlantic salmon with prosciutto, chives, rockets with a drizzle of olive oil, salt and pepper. Lovely. That sounds like a beautiful uh, meal there. Francis from Brighton loves avocado as a dessert with a little sugar. That's lovely. I think, I mean, you can get... Uh, avocado mousse so I guess it works as a dessert my husband's family actually loves oranges with a bit of sugar for dessert as well so might be something that's worth a go thanks for that Francis Uh, now we have a texter who will do a big guac for dipping in the prawns this Chrissy that is a good way to uh, have the um, uh, avocado now Mick's full message has come in now Mick's on the harvester at the moment He's reaping lentils. He's pretty happy about how they're coming in now, but he doesn't like to eat avocados because after shearing in his younger days, the colour and texture remind him of hitting a yolk boil off an old scrub weather. That is a very unappetising sight. I can imagine why that would put you off, Mick, but thank you so much for sending through that text. Finally today, you may or may not have heard of Haywire. Now, Haywire is an ABC competition for young people aged between 16 and 22 where they get to tell their stories about life in rural and regional areas. So winners have their stories recorded, then they get to head to Canberra early uh, next year to meet with other winners. Now, 16-year-old Zane Hunter from Port Perry is this year's winner from North and West and Brooke Nindorf spoke to him about how he felt when he won. But first, we'll start off by hearing his winning story. One night when I was oh, about three, sitting in Grandpa's lounge room in those big black leather lounges, surrounded by pictures of us kids and his winning horses on the wall, John Wayne walks onto the screen in the searches. Let's go home, Debbie. I thought, I want to know more about this man and what it means to be a good man. I've since watched every John Wayne movie, but I've also spent almost every weekend with Grandpa, and that's where I learned what it means to be a good man. Grandpa and I catch blue swimmer crabs in the Spencer Gulf on Saturdays, pickling and eating them until the juice runs down our faces. Not Sunday, otherwise Grandpa's shoulders would get too sore from pulling the nets up for work on Monday. Grandpa's a serviceman. As his service to his community as a mechanic, his service to the Solomon Town Football Club as a life member, his service to the Port Perry Harness Racing Club as a trainer and owner of many winning horses, 
and of course his service to his country in the army. Anzac and Remembrance Days are big on our combined calendar. I enjoy listening to his stories. <laughs> He's quite a storyteller, even if he regards himself as just a Nasho. Grandpa didn't think he did anything special. He worked as a mechanic and in transport. But he kept things going. He maintained them. When I'm marching at cadets, I think of him. Being an old-fashioned guy isn't that fashionable these days. But I've learned a lot from my grandpa. He gave me a love of camping and travelling and a love for our Flinders Ranges. He taught me to take care of what I have not to complain about things and to just go fix them. Grandpa taught me that making mistakes is okay. It's about how you repair them. He's a tradesman after all. He taught me that friendship is generationless. Taught me to share my history. Taught me to show love with simple gestures. That's what he's been doing all his years. And that's what I plan to do with mine. Uh, Zane Hunter from Port Perry, and I'm 16. I was quite surprised, actually. I hadn't expected it. It was a good result. Tell us about your story. What, what have you written about? I wrote about my relationship with my grandfather at the request of a couple of teachers that thought the story was all right. Tell us about the relationship with your grandpa. Well, I spend just about every weekend at his house doing odd jobs for him, and sometimes we go gardening or go camping, do a bit of fishing. I mean, the teachers said that they wanted you to write this story, but, but what prompted you to, to put it down on, on paper? Well, I suppose it was a bit of a favour, and then I wasn't real keen on the idea to begin with, but once they told me that about the benefits and going to Canberra and that sort of thing, I thought, well, there's no harm in trying. Writing the story itself was hard, but it was getting the words down was OK. It was just writing it properly that was the problem. And did you speak to your grandpa at all about writing the story? Well, I sort of surprised him with that one because I knew he wouldn't have been real keen on the idea because I wasn't. <laughs> and what was his uh, initial thoughts when you first told him? Well, when he found out I was that I won, he was quite proud, naturally, but he couldn't understand why I wrote the story about us. Are you going to be with him when you, you hear the uh, the story on the, on the radio? Oh, I probably will be, probably out in the garden, yeah. <laughs> And what are you looking forward to most about the Haywire experience, Zane? Well, I'm looking forward to meeting other people my age that have done some pretty interesting things. And going to Canberra will be pretty interesting, I think, meeting the politicians and all. Well, I hope you got a chance to listen in. That was North and West Haywire winner Zane Hunter from Port Perry speaking with Brooke Nindorf. And you can read and listen more to those winning stories online at abc.net.au slash Haywire. Uh, we've got a final avocado recipe from Mick from Manham. Avocado, cherry tomato, red onion, mango, a heap of coriander and a bit of lime juice and vinegar. Delicious. Thanks so much for that. Mick, very quickly, you're going to be hearing from Deb Tripe this afternoon on your radio. Deb, what's coming up? Hi, Cass. We're off to the Riverland talking to the Minister for Health about the expansion of the vaccination for Japanese encephalitis or encephalitis. And we're talking receipts. Do you use receipts that you get from the shops or have you stopped taking them from now on. I think about it. No, I, I don't really worry about them anymore. There they you seem go. to have died a bit. Look, look, bit of a trend change there. It's coming up to one o'clock.
ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Because I've been here for 35 years, mate. Yeah. And the weather is beautiful. <laughs> when I first moved here, yep, I had a lot of friends saying, what are you doing? Hear it anywhere, anytime, via the ABC Listen app. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.